Welcome to Recovery Machine, Episode 6. Today, we're going to look at what happens in the very short period of time uh, right after the initial change is made, uh, right up until your initial assessment uh, with a physician. So we're going to start with uh, the first part. We'll be looking at uh, disclosure uh, and the events that follow disclosure within the first few days. Uh, then we'll look at different strategies and maybe some risk factors that you'll want to think about uh, in the months that follow. And uh, we'll take a look at another uh, couple important things that you'll definitely want to be informed about uh, should you be in this position. Uh, so with that, I'll say hello to my co-host, Corey. How are you doing? I'm great, Nathan. Happy New Year. Happy yes. New Year to our, to yes. our audience. Thanks for checking back in with us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Much appreciated. Um, did you have a good, uh, good little holiday session there? I did. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I continue to be off work, but it was really nice. Uh, nice time got snowed in a little bit. Um, but had a great holiday. Yeah. yeah that's good to hear. I did as well. It was, uh, um, we didn't, I didn't get a chance to get back last year because of the, the pandemic situation. So, um, it was nice to be back in my hometown of Quinnell and, uh, yeah. And now I'm ready to, uh, to get more into this and uh, get better at uh, the whole podcasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, same. All right. So we're going to look at uh, what we're calling day zero. So day zero is what what we're what we mean by that is what happens when you decide that you're going to make a change. So for for example, in my case, I had uh, I had two different situations. Uh, one day zero where I decided to leave work and take a period of time off to try to kick Oxycontin on my own. So that when I made that decision and left work, that would have been, we would consider that day zero there. And then the events that followed would be uh, what we're looking at today. Similarly, uh, day zero, the next time uh, when uh, I was managing the store and uh, it became the uh, employer uh, basically figured out what was going on and uh, called me in for a chat. And from there at that time on would be uh, starting with day zero. And then what happened after that? And uh, could you uh, define yours, Corey? Uh, Quite similar. I mean, for me, it was from the time that I was um, called by my employer and told not to come into work and while I was awaiting everything else that followed, but it was the, the time where uh, my access to, to hydromorphone stopped. And when, I mean, the, the time when it was, I think two or three days after that, that I stopped using marijuana. But uh, so we're looking at just a, a couple of day period where all substance use stopped. And I was then waiting for the rest of the process to occur. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're using, uh, this day zero as a marker because <clears throat> there's going to be a bunch of different scenarios that can occur after that event. So for instance, you decide that uh, you don't like what's going on, whether it's uh, maybe you have a drinking problem. It's uh, it's only going on at home, not when you're at work, but it's, you feel that it's starting to affect your work or for whatever reason you want to make a change and you decide that you're going to take some personal time. Uh, so that's, that's one scenario where there's no, uh, you have complete autonomy. So you've decided how much time you're going to take off work 
and you're going to tackle the problem not on your own, but you're going to, you know, you're probably going to look for help and support, but you're going to, you're going to attack the problem without being forced into certain situations based on who knows what, as far as your employer union or, or college or other authority or regulatory body is concerned. So that's, that's the one scenario. And I'd like to point out that for me, uh, when I did that the first time, I laugh at myself quite a bit because of the uh, the level of ignorance. <laughs> it's not that my my heart was in the right place and it was the right call to make. Uh, obviously, I I knew something had to happen. Uh, unfortunately, I only gave myself a, a month before I went back to work, which is an absurdly short period of time yeah. and a, a large underestimation <laughs> of the time required to reset so that I would be stable enough to attempt something like that, especially without monitoring. I don't know that it, it could even be done like that in my situation. Um, I don't think I'd want to try it without being monitored, but like I said, at the time I didn't know. So um, it might be, you know, that's something that, that you'll, you'll definitely want to look at if you find yourself in that position is how much time you're going to want to take off. And I don't know about you, Corey, but from what I see, most people underestimate that or they look at it as a financial burden, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, the, and in your case, the financial part, when you're, when you're doing it on your own, when you don't have uh, any kind of insurance that's supporting you uh, one way or another um, or, or benefits that kick in, if you're just doing it by taking your own time off, then there's the financial side. But even for those with those of us, including myself, where there is financial support from from insurance and from the union and, and various various aspects, uh, I certainly uh, underestimated the amount of time that it was going to take, vastly, and and was given the message that it, it wouldn't take that long as well. To be clear, oh, okay, you know? yeah. Um, so initially, I think I was under the impression that it might take four or five months. From, from from day zero to getting back to work. Um, right. Yeah. I, I, for whatever reason, I don't know. I, I do see lots of nurses who are, who are kind of pointed in that direction. And it saddens me because I know that that's not going to happen. So I have to witness that person go through this period of thinking that they're going to be back at a certain point and then being dismayed when they find out that it's nowhere near that time, or in some instances, the, they don't get their license back at all. And that is not something that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's, they don't, the union or the uh, HR doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I wish it's one thing that was changed in that if, if a, an employer or a regulatory body was had made the decision that they didn't want that person back, uh, they should tell them and they should tell them right away. So they can, you know, reorganize their life. Yeah. Um, instead of stringing them on, for, I, I, you know, I've I've seen people. Uh, I had one client uh, last year, a uh, nurse that was involved in a really bizarre case, and uh, she had been in limbo for six years. And wow. I just, I'm like, you know, that's a that's a bizarre amount of time to be kind of hanging out and waiting to see what's happening, you know. And she's being paid like a, a small portion of her regular pay, but it's it's just it's a strange thing. So uh, that's something that I wish was different. Oh, <clears throat> definitely. Six years is, I mean, that's, 
that's uh, highly unusual. But if you think about being off of work for six years under any circumstances, uh, but let alone what that the effect that that has on your mental health and when it's a a mental health condition that has contributed to you going off work, it makes it all the more all the more challenging. So Nathan, I wanted to ask you this question. In my case, at least, my substance supply came from work, came from my employer. And so going off work, entering day zero, as we're calling it, meant that my supply was, was gone immediately. And that put me in a, in a, a cold turkey uh, circumstance where any, any withdrawal that would follow was on me to manage unless I reached out and, and, uh, and asked for some medical support which is an option. Um, so I wanted to ask you about your experience with that as well. Um, about tapering, tapering, we're, we're talking specifically about opiate use, but tapering certainly exists within, with alcohol use and other, other substances versus cold Turkey versus some, some medical support options that are out there too. It's a big conversation, but if you could. It is. And I do have uh, a fair amount of different experience here. Uh, ranging from borderline experimental all the way to, uh, you know, what you call a textbook uh, opiate taper. So, yeah, we can definitely discuss that a little bit. Um, the first time, like I said, was a, a situation where I decided to leave and I had planned, uh, I had planned a taper. So if you're lucky enough to be in, in that situation, um, I had tried other methods that didn't work for me, such as uh, I had tried methadone uh, and found that it was it was really difficult to taper down at any at any speed. Like I figured it would have from the dose I was on to where I want to get wanted to get to it would have taken me two years. Um, with uh, because that 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 drug's half life is so long, which is you know that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to be taken once a day, and it's designed to take care of uh, cravings and and kind of provide that pharmaceutical support for what's missing uh, and it can be very effective I've seen it work for for people who are able to to go slow and uh, that's the that's the idea generally with all these opioid tapers myself especially and and almost every single person I run across who wants to try an opioid taper uh, they always want to go faster than they should and I tell yeah. them it's go slow go low that's the tempo. So just if you keep that in your head, there's no point. Um, if you're, if you actually want to do this and you want to make a change that substantial, then it's going to take time. And if you rush it, you're way more likely to relapse. And if you relapse, you're right back to square one. So you just have to, it's one of those things where you really have to be patient. And, uh, it's, uh, it's something that an individual would have to feel out with their, you know, depending on if you're doing this in a clandestine way, then um, by all means do go online and uh, at least try to understand it. You know, I, I'm, we're talking specifically about uh, healthcare professionals here. So we're, we're taking for granted that the person has some baseline understanding of the medication that they're on, but uh, you're going to have to find a way to uh, procure enough for a proper taper and then go from there. So that's, that's one way. And that's what I did when I went, uh, 
I, I tapered down to a lower point and then just when I ran out, I ran out. So I, I didn't have enough to do a, a long, long taper and I didn't have the understanding or the patience. I, I wanted it to be over and I wanted to get through it. And I didn't understand that it would have been better for me to go nice and slow and uh, give my nervous system a chance to bounce back. Your case is interesting in that uh, I haven't seen too many people like you who are able to um, have that kind of a substance intake while maintaining some abstinence from the substance as well, so that you were in a position where you weren't probably in full-blown withdrawal uh, when, when your supply ended. Is that correct? That is correct. I don't think I was. Um, <clears throat> and because I, I was getting what I could from work and using it while I was at work and then treating my days off and <laughs> using my rationale of telling myself that I wasn't going to do that again the following week very often, um, I, was, I became quite used to that couple of days off without, without any opiate in my system. And so for that first couple of days of being off work permanently or at day zero, I was already kind of used to that feeling, I think. Um, and the anxiety I was feeling and all of the, all of the psychological turmoil I was having kind of coincided. And, and I think it was kind of enmeshed with any, any withdrawal that I did eventually have. But I think that happened probably, you know, closer to a week to two weeks into it because my body was so used to this cycle of like three or four shifts on four or five days off, three or four shifts on four or five days off. Um, so then once I got to that point where I would have normally been back to work, then I think my body was probably saying, and I was feeling anxious and feeling stressed and all this stuff. It was like, Hey, what a sec, wait a second. What about this uh, old friend that we've been leaning on for the last X amount of time, you know? Um, but and I think, Nathan, we've talked about this before, that that healthcare providers particularly are often very, very leery about accessing street drugs and that that's not commonly a, a route that, that they go to. And, and myself included, this is at, at, the, at the height of, of fentanyl. And I was, as much as my behavior was, um, was risk-taking behavior, that was something I was terrified of, that, that if I ever touched a, a street drug thinking it was an opiate, um, that it would be laced with fentanyl and I would, I'd be dead. Um, so, so I was always very mindful of that and mindful of the fact that when I stopped, I stopped and it was nothing. So, so yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Eh? Having that line in the sand where, and it's, it's another one of those things where you can see that there's some measure of control, even in the, even in the, uh, the full extent of being addicted to the hardest drugs ever, you'll see people who draw a line in the sand. For example, they won't, uh, maybe it's, they won't use intravenously or they won't, uh, or they draw the line at needles or, you know, whatever the, there's a personal line there. Maybe it's, they don't, uh, they're only going to stay with a, a product that they know has not been tampered with. So pharmaceutical grade stuff only. Um, because I, I faced the same dilemma uh, on my second, the, the second time I had to go through it. And I had learned a bunch of things by that time. And it made the, I think it gave me enough cushion so that I could hold the line. It's not that the thought didn't go through my head. Like I mentioned, I mean, I, I definitely thought about it, but um, 
and it wasn't that I could care less whether I, like, I didn't want to die. Uh, but I, that was not really the concern. The concern was that if I went down there and uh, did that, then I would forever be stuck, you know, because you, you know, it's, there's, a, there's something to be said about ease of access and trying to, when you're in that state, um, you know, the, the best thing you can do is, is try to get some clarity and you need, you know, you need abstinence to get clarity. So, um, so one thing I did want to talk about there was, uh, some of the different things that can be done. Yeah, please. Uh, so if you were, you might find yourself in the position that, um, you're able to go to your GP and if it is an opioid, um, and it's a, a high dose opioid and you don't want to, you know, you'd like to deal with it in a more, I don't know, gentle fashion, then there's nothing wrong with uh, trying methadone or Suboxone. Um, and that's a personal decision. You know, it, uh, being a pharmacist, I've seen a wide variety of, of people have success and, and have problems with those two. And for me, I... I was actually offered Suboxone uh, in treatment, which I found was amazing because I, I was currently clean and they wanted to put me on Suboxone. I thought that was pretty interesting, but um, I didn't like the look of Suboxone just because I'd had so many patients who had, I'd, I'd basically never seen anybody come off it. So I didn't like that. Uh, and methadone didn't seem to work for me in that regard either, uh, just because it, uh, it take a long. It took a long, long time, and either way, it wouldn't have mattered because I wasn't going to go in and complicate things by uh, getting a script. But that being said, that might be the move for a lot of people, you know, especially if you're in a situation where you think that you're going to have easier access and you want to try to, you know, maybe you for whatever reason you've got a, a friend or whatever who, who has tons of uh, access to street drugs or whatever, and if it comes down to that or or taking a harm reduction med medication, then I would definitely go harm reduction. Oh my God. Yeah. I think it's gr a great message to say that it has to be about choice. And I think to give, to give yourself a little bit of time to, to see, um, to see how you're doing with, with either tapering or with cold Turkey and just, and, and abstinence uh, is, I think it's fair, but also to, for me, like to assess the resources that I had, the connections that I had, my family support, um, how safe did I feel? And I mean, at that point I had also sim simultaneously stopped drinking any alcohol, stopped any marijuana use, everything. So, and I was, I felt confident in that. And I knew that I, that what I needed most was clarity. Um, and cause even like within a couple of days of clarity, I was, it was, it was helping me. Um, but I, I chuckled a moment ago when you said that about Suboxone, because I, I was actually offered it very, very early on, like within the first couple of days by a physician that I'd reached out to, but then I was offered it again um, during my first meeting with my addictions doctor, which occurred almost two months um, into abstinence, into sobriety. And I, thought, I remember thinking at the time, I'm, I've done it. I, it's an ongoing thing and I'm, I'm still working on it, but I've, I've done that part where like, why would I want to go on Suboxone now? Yeah, that's. I, would, uh, that's, I just. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. Yeah, it, it, it's. To me, it's crazy to ask, and I, I don't. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some protocol somewhere that uh, that make it so that physicians are required to at least offer that. 
but there should be some consideration. I mean, I honestly, if I was in that position as as a healthcare professional, I I couldn't offer that to somebody who'd been away from opiates for that long. There's I couldn't do it in good conscience. I I would feel terrible, you know, unless yeah. they if, unless they're displaying some kind of like uh, instability that I thought their life was in danger. I would. There's no way I would do that. No. So Nathan, how, how gross did you feel? I think people would want to know that, um, in both those day zeros that you experienced. (laughs) How gross. Um, well, the first time, uh, so I, I took a week once I was out, I actually had a bunch left and I got frustrated and, and, uh, threw it in a, I threw it in a garbage container, downtown van. And I always wonder, if anyone was lucky enough or unlucky enough to find that, because uh, for if you're just scrounging through the garbage like a homeless person, all of a sudden you come across this big, you know, container of goods. But um, anyway, I, yeah, I got frustrated with, so I, I kind of I didn't want to do the rest, take the rest of the time, and I was impatient, so I threw it away, thus closing off any uh, any more comfort I could get from that. And so I started acute withdrawal and it took about a week. So um, you're talking, you know, I, I, so my daily dose ranged from 240 to 600 milligrams of uh, oxycodone a day. Right. So, um, and maybe I had that down to like, I'd, I'd done a fast track down to maybe like 120. So uh, it was, it, well, yeah, maybe about there. So it was less but my body was already upset with that. So when there was nothing else, I'd set up, uh, I'd set up some pharmaceutical help. And uh, one of the things I'd used that, that was helpful is something called uh, the Thomas method or the Thomas recipe or protocol. I don't know if you, have you heard of that one, Corey? I have, but, but tell us. Okay. So it's, um, <clears throat> Basically, it's a, a guy who uh, I think he was an IV heroin user, and uh, he'd been on and off multiple times, and he kind of became this. Uh, he became almost like an expert of how to ameliorate uh, um, withdrawal symptoms. So he uh, or alleviate, sorry. Uh, so he was using uh, usually some kind of sleep medication. So I I didn't use benzodiazepines, but I used Zopiclone because you're not going to sleep for a week without it. And uh, obviously that's going to make it easier if you can sleep as much as possible. So I used uh, Zopiclone in combination with Gravol to induce sleep. And it's important. I, I do want to say at this point that, that we're not endorsing or, or advertising or saying that this is something that you should do. We're just describing, I'm describing what I did and sure. uh, the result of that. So um you know, this is all is based on what I knew as a professional and my assessment of the risk versus benefit under the circumstances. So, yeah, with that being said, um, Imodium is obviously something you're going to want to take. Otherwise, you're, <laughs> the diarrhea is just going to be nonstop. Gravel helps with the uh, nausea, too. If you don't take that, you're going to be throwing up around the clock. Uh, L-tyrosine, there's other... Um, some people use uh, HTP, um, and what was the other one? B, uh, vitamin B6 also helps. Potassium and electrolytes are a big deal, so there's a good chance that you're at least partially dehydrated. 
So you should have some kind of uh, like hydrolyte, have the hydrolyte going. You're going to, because you are going to do some throwing up, you're definitely going to have some diarrhea, but even going in, you're going to be dehydrated most likely because of your poor diet and just the way your digestive system has not been working. So uh, some kind of hydrolyte or a gastrolyte, whatever you can do. Um, and then it was really hard for that week. Uh, the only thing for the first three days, I couldn't eat anything. And then on the last four days, I was able to have like a teaspoon of peanut butter and I'd have like a little couple pieces of banana just to, for potassium. And uh, that's, oh, and then clonidine was the other thing I used. And clonidine is one of the, the problems with acute withdrawal that can be pretty scary uh, is how high your heart rate gets and your blood pressure. And uh, what can happen is it plays into your anxiety, which is skyrocketing. And then um, you can basically get caught in this anxiety loop where you're just having panic attack after panic attack. And there's only so much of that that a human can endure uh, before they're going to, you know, you're either going to be hospitalized or uh, whatever the case, you're not going to be able to continue on your own volition. No. So, Okay. Um, so you need something to, uh, to, to deal with that. And I realized some of those things, um, like, uh, the clonidine, and the Zopiclone are not over the counter medications, but I mean, this is, uh, what I had access to. So this is what I did now that approach with the cold Turkey got me back on my feet. So I could, I could walk around and, uh, start working on, um, you know, staying awake longer and, and, and having some kind of structure to my days so within a, within a week, I was kind of, you know, I started with walking one block and then the next day I'd walk two, et cetera. Um, so I, and I think because you're, there's, there's such an imbalance, your homeostasis is so far out of whack that, um, you know, had I given myself appropriate time, I, you know, even if I would have stretched it out to three months, I would have certainly had a better chance than one month. But one month is just absolutely too short for any kind of recovery from even, you know, I mean, my, my addiction wasn't maybe as severe as, as a lot of people's, but <laughs> it's still going to feel <laughs> severe when you, uh, when you stop taking those drugs. So, um, yeah. And then the only other thing that I could think of that was helpful during that time was uh, saunas, hot tubs, uh, even, you know, warm bath. Cause you're going to, you get to a point where you, probably experience where you're, you're shaking your, your uh, body's uh, natural thermometer is way out of whack and you're hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't stop the, the bone aches and uh, it feels like you're freezing to death, you know? So, um, so that's, that's that part. And that's how I used the first, uh, got through the first bit. So I ended up getting myself back to work and thought that I was in good shape, which we know is, uh, not, uh, not the way to do it. So we don't, we want to avoid that. And I would encourage people, if you are going to do that type of thing, uh, please, uh, make sure like I had my uh, girlfriend at the time with me and she was keeping an eye on me. Don't do something like this without somebody keeping an eye on you. And, um, and yeah, uh, make sure you, you kind of study the, the method correctly so that you, you know what you're doing because it's once, if you're not prepared and it starts, then you're, you're not going to be able to do anything about it once that withdrawal kicks in. So for me that I would call that first week acute withdrawal. Yep. And then after that, I would call post-acute withdrawal, which I didn't even know what that meant. And we we're going to discuss that later in the podcast, but uh, um, so that's the one 
the one thing. Did you did you use anything like that? Uh, vitamins, uh, anything to help you get through that first little part, Corey? I I didn't. No? Um, I didn't. I didn't use a thing. Um, and I don't say that as a point of pride, but I I really didn't. Um, and in hindsight, I, I the thing that stood out to me as you were talking was about sleep. Like my sleep for that first couple of weeks was just terrible. And the first couple of days was, was almost none. And um, I look back and I think, you know, I, I, I think that was kind of my own stubbornness and my own not wanting anything else on my, on my farm and and just thinking that I could do it. And, uh, and I did do it, but I think, geez, I, I put myself through um, a little bit of extra torture by not having any support to, to get to sleep and to, make sure that I was well rested and, and stuff. Um, it, I agree with what you said about the, about, you know, the amount of time it takes to have normal digestion after that. I didn't sort of pursue any support for that either. And that just sort of resumed on its own over the course of the next couple of weeks, but, um, but it is rough. And, uh, but looking back my, yeah, like you, you had mentioned our digestion was rough throughout our addiction. And, um, so you have, you do have symptoms during withdrawal, but you've, I was having, I was vomiting every, every day at work, every single day. And so it wasn't, and was constipated. And so it wasn't unusual to, um, to be feeling unwell in a, in a gastrointestinal sense anyway. So I just kind of rode that out, but you don't have to just ride it out. And, uh, and there is, I think you outlined it nicely that there is no right or wrong way that it's got to be kind of what works for you. And it's really, it's on each of us to, um, it, it, it forces you into a state of self-awareness anyway, and physical, physiological awareness of what your body's doing at that time. And because you don't, you, if you, if you are choosing to, to be abstinent, then not being, not having any substance in your system makes you really, really kind of hyper aware initially. And, um, hyper aware would, that'd be one way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> hyper aware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you gotta, and you gotta be honest with yourself, I think. And like you said about, you know, anxiety and, and that was certainly a problem for me too. Um, and I was putting that more on, I put the anxiety more on the, the walls crashing in on me in that first couple of weeks. But I think if I'm looking back now, I think, Oh, no, that was actually, those were withdrawal symptoms. Um, and the, and the walls were crashing on me. So it was happening simultaneously. Yeah. Um, but a little bit of support would have probably reduced, reduced my, my risk in general and made me more comfortable for sure. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the big concern uh, for me is that I, I worry that there's a limit to what I can tolerate. Um, you know, if you're, for me, uh, like that's it. It's basically, I guess the easiest way would be to imagine uh, having a terrible nightmare, and you you're in that nightmare, and it, there's no knowledge that you're dreaming. You fully believe what's going on, so you've got that level of uh, kind of anxiety and fear response going on. Um, as a, but that's just the baseline, and then you're trying to you're trying to ignore the fact that you've you've got yourself into this situation. So you're kind of beating yourself up while you're, 
while you're swimming around in this, uh, just like a ocean of, of fear. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I suspect there's a big difference in what people can tolerate there. Um, I've seen people who seem to be able to get through acute, uh, in a way that just baffles me. Like I don't, uh, <laughs> I, I don't understand how they can uh, walk through that kind of fire and uh, come out the other side and shake it off. Um, so there's obviously a wide variation there, but uh, um, the other thing I did want to mention here is uh, just to not make it all about uh, um, opiates. Um, I wanted to bring up the Sinclair method and talk a little bit about that, what that was. And uh, just for people who, who are trying to deal with, uh, drinking is an interesting uh, problem to have if you're, if you're having trouble with alcohol, just because of its, its ubiquitous uh, presence and its availability, it, um, you kind of got to, I think you, you, you need to use some kind of strategy other than just, you know, trying to willpower your way through it. Um, that's not to say that it can't be done. Lots of people do, um, either, uh, cut down their, their drinking to a level that they're, they're is manageable or, uh, choose to be abstinent from alcohol entirely. And they, they're able to, to go on, uh, you know, with, uh, with support groups and stuff like that. Um, but the Sinclair method is underutilized, I feel. And, uh, if you don't know what it is, it's a, uh, naltrexone uh, it's, it's naltrexone is the base of it but it's given in such a way so that you you continue your drinking as you normally would and uh, so you're drinking we're, we're assuming you're drinking daily so uh, some doctors will tell you like an hour before your first drink of the day uh, or at the same time every day you take this uh, naltrexone and what happens is after a couple of weeks three weeks the uh, we know that with alcohol, there's a wide variation in the res dopamine response you get just on a genetic basis. It's got the widest variation of all drugs. So, in other words, you can have somebody who responds with a one, and, and whereas somebody else can respond with a thirty. And if you looked at heroin, it would be more like uh, seven to ten. So some people, that's why you know some people don't even understand why people drink, and there's other people who don't understand why other people aren't drinking all the time. It's because there's a wide variation in that dopamine response. So what this drug does is it tones down the, the reward that you get from that, uh, from the alcohol. So over time, um, all of a sudden you, you're less inclined. You, it, it basically breaks the, the, the psychological link there between drinking and pleasure. And a lot of people find that their drinking either is drastically reduced or some people quit entirely with very little effort just because of that, uh, just by using naltrexone. So um, if that's a situation that you might find yourself in, do ask your doctor about that. You might have to ask a couple before they give it to you. Um, it's, yeah, I, I, I think because it's one of those situations where that drug is, it's uh, been off patent for a long time. And uh, <laughs> I don't think you're going to get anybody doing the studies now to, uh, to try to get it out there for that, but uh, it is available. So I wanted to mention that. Yeah. I, I was going to add Nathan that in my years of working as a nurse uh, and all of the various types of withdrawal that I've seen, um, 
I think alcohol might be unmatched in the um, level of risk that it can put someone someone in um, if it, if it's unmanaged, and it, you know, like risk of seizure, risk of of aspirating on on vomit, uh, risk of injury. Um, it's really nasty, and it it um, it doesn't. I think in the I, I think I noticed in the recovery communities that I'm in that that doesn't get its due credit of how how difficult alcohol withdrawal really is. Yeah, I mean, it's if you think about it from a just a fatality point of view, you're far more likely to die from from that. Or you know, alcohol can we know it could kill you. Just withdrawals yeah. from it could kill you from seizures. So it's uh, it's a different animal for sure. And I could tell you that I'm. I think about that often. I'm very grateful that I don't have that kind of relationship with alcohol. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I saw friends growing up who kind of gravitated towards alcohol in that way. Um, and it, it seems that there's certain people that it, it almost, um, it changes who they are, you know? And yeah. then once they turn into that person and they continue to drink, it becomes this, uh, situation where you can you can see you can forecast the damage that's going to happen to their life well in advance. So yeah. it's a huge yeah. huge challenge, and uh, yeah, I feel for people who are struggling with that. But yeah, again, it's something that people do beat. So there is hope for sure. No, for sure there is. Um, so maybe we should maybe we should move on to the other other side of this experience there's you know the personal withdrawal side and and managing your your physical and mental health and stuff we're going to get into that a little bit more too but we've talked about um in the last number of episodes about you know whether or not you uh go to your employer whether or not you report yourself or if your employer comes to you or if you go to your um governing body or college or whether you go to your unions for support um, there are differences in all of those avenues. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about what to, what you can expect. And it's, it varies greatly depending on what your profession is within healthcare or within any kind of professional, uh, platform. But, um, so I'll, you know, for myself, for example, I, um, I was called by my employer and stopped, was told to stop coming into work, but I went through my union. So all of the, um, all of the actual support that I received in terms of what was next and how to, how to seek resources, um, seeking, seeking appointments, seeking specialists, uh, eventually treatment and stuff that was put into motion by, by my union. You know, um, I think it was the next day after I was called by my employer and told not, that I wasn't going to be coming in. I called the union and I think I wrote them an email and then I called them and said, here's what I've been doing. Here's what's, what's up. And then they, they supported me from there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the ways it goes, uh, especially with nurses. You see that where uh, if, if possible um, you could get into a situation where the employer and the uh, union are working together without the uh, college involved and uh, that is, uh, if you can manage that, that is really spectacular. Um, if you find yourself in that situation where uh, it, it is 
a possibility that the the union or the uh the, your college can be kind of left out of the the proceedings and the back to work and the treatment it's definitely to your advantage to do that um one of the reasons why is uh often and i see this a lot where an individual is pressured to uh change their license to no non-practicing um and almost everybody will at least have somebody along the line suggest that uh, from your, you know, your college. Yep. And that makes things, I think that makes things a little easier on their end as far as um, kind of containing you and keeping a thumb on you so that they, they can be from a legal standpoint, entirely sure that they're comfortable with you going back to work. Um, so I understand why they do that, but it's often not, Often they won't require it. So if you can always choose to go uh, to, to a suspended license um, in the beginning and don't, don't opt for going non-practicing because it's, it's way more expensive. It's way more work for you to try and get your license back down the line. So if that could be avoided, I mean, sometimes it won't be. I mean, they're going to, if they're, they feel they want you to, to handle your license and and that's it, then that's it. There's nothing you do about it. But well, I shouldn't say there's nothing you do about it. You can get a lawyer, which is actually what I'd suggest you do about it. But um, uh, that's a whole different ballgame. So there's that, that situation. Uh, and then the other situation would be um, like what happened to me the second time around where, you know, the, my employer took the, what would be the standard approach and uh, reported me to the college. And pharmacy, you know, we don't have a union. So basically the college is going to be the one who, you know, the, the employer is going to distance themselves. And uh, I mean, they do have some obligation there as far as duty to accommodate is concerned and stuff. Uh, but uh, mostly you're dealing, dealing with the college and that's, that's probably the hardest in my experience is they're the, the most difficult entity to deal with. Although I have seen some crazy um, uh, human resources departments uh, in your case, especially Corey, where um, there, there seems to be all sorts of different kind of ideas and motivations about uh, what it means to uh, be treated and recovered and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, generally that's, that's kind of what's going to happen there. So obviously, you know, if you're listening to this and you're trying to, you're in that spot where you're trying to decide what to do, even from, it's not, you're not going to think this, but I'm telling you, it's in your best interest, even on a, on a um, financial, from a financial point of view, to stop what you're doing and get serious about getting healthy. Because you might think that, uh, you know, you can keep, let's say you continue on for another couple of years, whatever it's, all you're doing is making it harder for yourself to dig out of the situation that you're in. Um, you know, you're at increased risk of death. You're, you know, your absolute risk of death, death is way, way elevated. Um, and I mean, there's just, obviously there's a million different things that could happen. So I would encourage people to, to look into trying to get support, even if, I mean, if you have to pay out of pocket, that's fine. But uh, doing that versus, uh, what some people do where they go ask for help. Uh, unfortunately, that is not a good plan, in my opinion. If you do that, uh, you're going to be locked into the machine and that's the end of your autonomy. 
That doesn't mean that you can't come out healthy the other end, but what it will mean is that uh, you're going to be facing three to five years of monitoring, uh, extensive costs that will, you know, for me, three years of monitoring, five years of monitoring, you're looking at $50,000 in monitoring fees at least, and that's coming out of your pocket. So uh, these are things that you should consider when uh, making that kind of a decision. And In, in the pharmacy case. In, in the case. pharmacy case, yeah. yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I mean, I hear this time and time again, and I, I can even talk to people when they're telling me that they're going to go in and, and, and kind of ask their, their union for help or their employer for help, or even give their, their license up thinking that that's the right thing to do. And from an ethical standpoint, you bet it's the right thing to do, but it's not going to help you the way you think it's going to help you. So just be aware that that's, um, there's ramifications that come with that path that, that can be avoided if you, if you figure out a way to do this with uh, your own kind of setup. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it, it was too late. Like I, <clears throat> by the time I got the phone call from, from my employer and I knew that they knew what was up with me um, at that point, you, you, I didn't really have another option other than to, to go and seek some support. And the, I mean, it's within nursing, it's so common and prevalent is that, you know, they have a whole, whole department in the, in the union for this type of thing and, and are very, very used to it. And um, I found that to be, to be reassuring. And so those conversations that I had with the union were actually easier for me and less, um, less nerve wracking than the conversations I had with, with, you know, close family. Cause it was like, I was talking to people who I, I was one in however many one in 10, let's say nurses who, who have gone through it. Right. Yeah. And that there's something to be said for that, for sure. I would also say that, um, although I tried it on my own the first time, um, you know, I, I failed to understand the significance of the problem. So there's that, I mean, how many people are going to really be able to assess themselves correctly. And on the second time I couldn't do that anymore for whatever reason, I was at a loss. I, I could, I no longer, I was too far down the rabbit hole to to figure a way out. And I just lack the will anymore. You know, I, I think you get to a point where you're kind of, you almost give up and you don't think that, well, I, I didn't think it was possible. So it's like, okay, well, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. And I, you know, whatever happened there at work where I, you know, I had put myself in a situation where it was, you know, that to continue would have been impossible that, uh, you know, I, I guess that's kind of a safeguard that I put in there, but it uh, <laughs> it doesn't make it any easier as far as when the the shitstorm starts, right? It's still no, a horrible thing. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, I just I, I lack the capacity at that time, and there will be people who who find themselves uh, in that situation where they just they either I mean, who knows? Chances are, if if you're in this position, you probably have other issues going on in your life, right? Where uh, maybe your personal life is is not what it used to be, or you've got some other issues that you're trying to kind of stave off with the drug use anyway. So, you know, you're probably not in the best, even, you know, drugs aside, you're probably not in the best frame of mind. No, ap applying what we've talked about in the last few episodes about like how that uh, addict brain speaks to us when we're, when we're actively using our substances, 
to try to make that to try to be rational and make those decisions and navigate navigate all this stuff with your employer and with seeking a way out of that uh and without absence and without like removing yourself from the workplace i i don't know that i could have done it because i i think i would have lost that battle every single time um it's not to say that it can't be done but but with all of the other things you're up against i think that that <laughs> that internal voice in in my head was enough to um to keep me losing until i was cut off and had to press the reset button fully right like um yeah it, it's it's a matter of choice and it's a matter of of life circumstances but that reset button is really really <laughs> vital you have to kind of clear clear the dust away from it to access it right absolutely um just to give people a, a an example of of what can happen um if you do try to take that route and it's i have uh, a couple clients uh Corey, you're aware of both of them and they uh the one is a is a nurse who was having. Uh, I mean, she had all the reasons in the world to come apart. She had a, a tragedy happen in her life. Was concerned about the amount that she was drinking, and went in and asked for help from her employer. By the time she reached me, she was in a process of litigation with the college regarding a manager who was then trying to pin missing narcotics from two years ago on her. For some reason, you know, th th this is what can happen. And when you're, <laughs> you know, she didn't even, she had what she felt was a drinking problem that was concerning her. It had nothing. She was still performing excellently at work. She was, there was no issue there. She just asked for help. And this is what happens. And now she's locked into a monitoring contract and she's still trying to, um, she's finally got it uh, uh, cleared that the narcotics had nothing to do with her and stuff. But Imagine having all that happen when you're trying to, you think that you're just going to go in there and somebody's going to help you and they just railroad you. Yeah. And uh, I, another, uh, another example, the same situation only uh, it was a, uh, they went in and, and talked to a, the individual went in and talked to a, a clinical counselor, addiction specialist who then um, I can't, I don't think there was any kind of, uh, I don't think they had the authority to do this other than the fact she was in the same situation where she was concerned about her drinking, wasn't affecting her job, but that counselor decided to tell her employer, yeah. which is a, an ethical, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see how they could, uh, they could do that uh, ethically and, and uh, in good conscience. But anyway, that happened. So then she got stuck in this whole uh, situation and, and she's just, just about out the other end of it. But I mean, again, you're, these are like three to five year terms, folks. They're, they will change your life. So, you yeah. know, it's worth considering. Yeah. So Nathan, maybe this leads us into the next, to the next question a little bit, like all of these, there's so much about, about this process that, um, that includes a loss of control, like that is out of our hands. We, we do make the choice about how we, how we navigate it or who we disclose to, how we go about our disclosure, how much information we withhold. Um, there are aspects of it that are within our control, but otherwise you're kind of, uh, you know, a pinball bouncing around a bit with, with different bureaucracies, um, like in some cases, three or four different bureaucracies, I think in my case. Um, so 
the really the only thing that we can be certain to control um, as best we can is ourselves and our own kind of mental health and, and, and our world. And um, I think that obviously we've gotten into this in the last number of episodes that that's difficult enough when you're in active addiction and when your mental health is struggling, but then you put yourself into a situation of high stress of, of high exposure of high disclosure. And um, it would be stressful for absolutely anybody, even if they didn't have a substance use issue, even if it was just uh, a performance issue at work, say, and it had nothing to do with substance abuse. Um, so how to, how to kind of actually manage that, I think, is a really important discussion. Yeah, definitely. Um, keeping in mind that from day zero, you're probably looking at a month, maybe three months, somewhere around there before you see uh, a physician for an initial uh, independent medical evaluation. That's right. Uh, after which you will more than likely be sent away to a facility for probably five weeks or more usually five weeks. Um, so you're going to have, depending on, you know, I mean, things have been different now with uh, the state of the medical system and the strains that are on it right now. Um, but usually, you know, you from that day zero on, you're going to have, let's say, uh, say three months at least, where you're, you're basically, you're, you're not at work. You're hopefully... Um, through acute withdrawal somehow, um, or you're or you're on a maintenance uh, medication for harm, uh, harm reduction, whatever the case may be. So let's assume you get to that point. Yeah, and now you're you're thinking about uh, you know all the stresses of paying your bills uh, now that you're off work. Um, you're thinking about what people are talking about uh, back at uh, you know are, are people discussing you, you're, you know, you, you have all these feelings that, uh, about what happened and, and uh, it's not a fun place to be mentally. I mean, I was uh, anxious, depressed, uh, despondent. I just, it's, uh, it's tough. So I think for me, there were certain things that helped a lot to get me through that first little period and kind of keep me motivated and on track to complete the process. And um, we've talked about a few of these uh, in, in groups and stuff, but uh, they're definitely worth going over. So unfortunately, the way this process works, right when you're at your most vulnerable, as far as stress is concerned, you're going to be hit with a bunch of different stressors that you didn't even know exist. So you, you, you find yourself in a position where all these little things start to matter. And by little things, I mean um, like daily structure. So trying to find a way to, uh, you know, it, it, when you go from working full time to, to no work, a lot of people have trouble with that adjustment anyway. And they find their sleep, they start sleeping later. Maybe they're sleeping too much. Uh, maybe they, they find that they're just, and this is without any kind of, you know, not dealing with any kind of post-acute withdrawal symptoms or anything, just, just on a, you know, person to person basis. It's usually the case people have a little bit of trouble making that adjustment. So that's one thing that, uh, that I think is important is structure. And um, was that something that you were able to address in that uh, period of time, Corey? 
I think it's something I struggled with that suddenly you got a lot of time on your hands <laughs> right? and, um, and a lot of time to think and a lot of, you're kind of alone. I mean, we had, we had supports around us, each of us, but ultimately you're on your own. And, uh, and yeah, the, the reasons to get up, the reasons that kind of the uh, factors that, that drive your week are changed and are eliminated. And, um, and your routine is kind of gone. I had a, I had my son with me for part of that time for half of that time. And that in itself really kept, you have to have a, you know, you kind of have to keep those routines normal for a, for a small child. And so that really helped me. Um, and it, my routines worked around his routines. I think that was something that really kept me motivated, kept my life structured. Um, I know that's kind of an unusual circumstance and not everyone, not everyone has that, but, um, but even if you, even if you don't, I think, the, the, the principles of, of that, even if I removed my son physically from that, okay, like, here's when I'm going to go to bed. Here's when I eat dinner. Here's when I go for a walk. Um, here's when I've got some creative time. Here's when I've got some play time. Not that I was playing, but I think those principles were actually kind of helpful to me, even if I didn't have my son with me and they, they kind of guided me. But the amount of time that was on my hands um, getting used to that initially was really, really rough, really rough because your thoughts are, um, are so negative and complicated. Um, and then on top of that, again, you have to, you have to maintain and you have to, if, if you are going the route of abstinence, that's the, that's the key. And so nothing else can be a part of that routine. That's going to, that's going to complicate that or, or mess it up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I could definitely see how having a child would, uh, would help with structure. Um, I find that even, I mean, I don't have a child, but I have a dog <laughs> and that's not the same right. thing at all, but what it does do is uh, um, she eats at a certain time and she wants to go out in the morning at a certain time. And I get up at a certain time because that's when she gets up and, you know, it's, she has a certain desire to be, in a structured kind of lifestyle. And because of that, it, uh, it kind of helps me maintain structure. And it was structure was something that I, I really had trouble with. And I didn't even understand the importance of it at first. Um, and the, one of the reasons why I think it, it, it helps is it plays into, you know, the other things that uh, you want to be thinking about. And that's, um, you know, it's a good time to look at your, your health in general, as far as how's your sleep, you know, are you getting any sleep? What's your sleep hygiene? Like, have you looked at the, you know, these are probably things that you've ignored for a long time. You know, you know, what are you sleeping on? Is it a, you know, is your bed 300 years old? Uh, you know, what can you do to improve your, your, you know, just the basics of your sleep regimen, right. Um, and having structure helps you look at that as a, as a component of that structure. Same with diet, you know, how many times are you eating a day? What are you eating? Um, you know, um, for me in the beginning, I, I wasn't hard on myself with food. I let myself eat pretty much anything. And, uh, for somebody coming off opiates, you're, you're looking for quick carbs all the time because your brain is trying to, it's trying to use glucose instead of what it had before to, uh, alleviate pain. Um, so, I let myself do that for a little while. And then I started, uh, 
structuring my diet so that I was getting more, more protein, uh, more healthy fats and, you know, giving my uh, nervous system, the, the fuel it needed to heal as I went along. So those things kind of play into your structure. And then the other stuff that, um, like you were saying, a, a creative process uh, is, is important. I, I, there was very few things early on for me that got me out of my head and I needed to get out of my head. If I stayed in my head for too long, I was, I felt that I was in significant danger. Um, so between meditation, reading, writing, and um, well, that for me, writing was my creative outlet, but anything like uh, I did do some, uh, they had in the facility I went to, they had a ceramics thing where you could, uh, paint little uh, statues and structures and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, that was like one of the few things that I actually enjoyed in that, uh, in that facility, because it would, it just, it narrows your focus. And when your focus is narrowed down it, and it's not like it's taking a whole bunch of brain power to do, but it just, there's a calming aspect to it. It's a Zen like thing, like uh, gardening, you know, that's just that same thing where you're using your hands and it's not an overly difficult task, but it's enough to kind of just, there's something soothing about it. And uh, making a space for that in the day was really important for me as well. Did you, did you keep your journals or any of the writing that you did? I did. Uh, I still have it. And, you know, I, I just, I, I write fiction um, as a hobby and I just, I didn't, the amount of, introspection that they want you to do in treatment is I, I understand why it's done. And I think there's real value in it, but I, I got to a point where I had, I felt that I had looked under every stone <laughs> and it becomes redundant. And once I reached that point, I think the the journaling was at its, the end of its usefulness to me. And I had to turn to something else that would, that brought me more kind of mental stimulation and joy. And that's, that's creative writing, but yeah. the, the journaling and stuff, it's an interesting one because some people, they can get, uh, they have dream journals, they have daily journals, they, uh, they get tremendous benefit. And there, there's something about that that helps them maintain a structure. They like it a lot. I've never been the, the journaling guy uh, what I do have is a, a called an Amber list. It's a, um, it's a daily checklist that kind of basically it, it's nothing complicated, but it, it, it gives me a few things to like it. I have to write down every day, three things that I'm grateful for. I have to write down three things that made me happy that day uh, because there's evidence to suggest that doing that actually improves your outlook. And lo and behold, I, I believe that it does. Um, so just a bunch of little things that are kind of healthy and they don't take a lot of time and it sort of keeps me on track throughout the day. And that's, that's the way I handle the structure situation as opposed to, you know, sitting down at night and, and journaling and, and kind of going over the day or, or having like a recovery journal based thing. For sure. The thing that, the way that the writing helped me was that even still, and I don't write now, like I did in that first, uh, say three or four months, but the, the most active time of, of day for my brain is that 
hour and a half or two hours before I go to sleep, mm. especially when the lights are off and when I'm trying to fall asleep. And uh, any worries or anxieties or stressors or just little thoughts that I've had throughout the day, suddenly they're really, really loud. And, um, and that's better now. I still have difficult days with that. But in the first, in that first couple of months, um, I did that as a, as a kind of an active practice where when I would get into bed and like, you know, lights were off or just the lamp was on kind of a thing. And that's when I would write. And it did help me to go to sleep because when I look at the, and I, I have the first journal that I did and I ended up writing, filling two full journals within the first couple of months. But um, I didn't start journaling immediately for the first couple of weeks, like maybe for the first 10 days. And I know how little I slept for that first 10 mm. days. And I know how, how just brutal, brutally active my mind was um, and how negative my thinking was and stuff. And then I know that, that after that, this, my sleep did improve and it kind of coincided with, with my use of journaling. And I don't think it was all about that. Cause I think it was also my body kind of getting used to being off opiates and, and some of the stress was starting to ease about, you know, I, my family knew and I had support and stuff, but, um, but the writing really helped to, to tone down my thinking a little bit. And I also learned that it doesn't necessarily matter what you're writing, even if it is creative writing, you know, I've, I've recently gone back and looked at my, my first journal and, and, uh, there's like five pages that I wrote about comparing myself to, I, at the time I had lots of feral rabbits in my neighborhood and in my yard. And I wrote like five pages on how similar I was to the feral rabbits that were in my yard. And, (laughs) and, and just that kind of, that kind of expression and release and, um, and kind of getting it out was really, really helpful. So I I think just to put pen to paper, what, no matter what it is, is, is a helpful exercise. And, um, and I don't think, I think the fact that it's for you, it's turned into creative writing says that it's, that that's, that, that continues to be the outlet, right. And, and uh, a form of expression. And yeah. And I, I should say that uh, early on, I mean, it, it was just that it, it was, uh, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. There's something about when you get caught in a recurring thought pattern uh, and you're ruminating on something, especially negative it did help me to, even if it was in the middle of the night, to just stop, grab a notebook and just write it out and look at it and structuring it on paper sometimes was enough to at least move that pattern away for a while. And you go on to another pattern or whatever, but hopefully it was less annoying and, you know, onward you would go. But that's, uh, it's akin to, I don't know if you've ever had a, You've probably had recurring dreams before, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes I've had a couple situations where they, some dreams I, I don't know what to make of them, but they they seem louder than others. You know what I mean? They're they're demanding a larger part of your attention for some reason, and um, there's you know there it might be that there's there's things in there that you should be addressing, or maybe there's some clues there as to what's going on in the background of your psyche that you're not consciously aware of. But I've found that when I take the time to get up and write those dreams out, that dream stops happening. Mm-hmm. So, have you had that happen as well? Uh, yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before with my art. I've had that where the, 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 after I do a, 
painting or a piece of clay about a recurring memory that has bugged me or caused me to lose sleep or, or given me anxiety. Oftentimes that memory fades away a little bit and I can come back to that memory, but it doesn't come back involuntarily mm-hmm. uh, so often. So it, I think there is something to that. I was going to say that I think that there's so much, there's such a common piece about recovery where it's about restoring the connection between our brain, our body and our spirit. And so we establish routines. We get to know our, you know, we improve our sleep hygiene. We get active and get walking or get exercising. We change our eating habits. Those are all like connections between what our brain is doing and telling us and how we feel physically and then how we respond to how we feel physically. And and the writing or any kind of creative process is kind of like, um, it's literally that. It's connecting your hand, your hands, which are putting it to paper or creating the whatever the piece of art or writing or whatever it is with what you're thinking. And it's like the, it's a, such a simple mind body connection to make that takes some, um, takes some practice and some commitment to do it, but yeah, there's something to that. There is something to it. It's weird. It's a, it's like a ghost that's looking for some sort of validation. Those thoughts are, they want to manifest in, in our conscious reality in some form. And once they are manifested, then it's like they settle down and go away. And I don't know why. I mean, obviously it's some sort of a catharsis, but it's a strange one really, when you consider what's going on there psychologically, like why yeah. would that, why would, why would that make a difference? Maybe it's that our brains are because our brains are constantly searching for patterns and constantly trying to reorder our environment especially when we're confused and when you're really confused um, or if you've been on any kind of uh, psychogenic drug, you'll know what it's like as far as your brain can take a piece of information. And if it doesn't know what to do with it, it'll make it into something, you know, whatever, yeah. it, whatever it thinks best fits that scenario. And uh, maybe that's what it is, is a brain is kind of, it, it doesn't, it can't rectify what's going on with that thought process. So it wants to somehow give it enough order that it can uh, kind of leave it alone. I don't know. Yeah. And I think of all the things that all of the um, memories or pieces of grief that bug me and that, that, that were like uh, problematic in my thinking. And once I nurtured them and like, you know, held those, held those memories and said, like, I, they did have an effect on me and here's what it meant. And, um, here's how I can come out the other side of it. It's like they, (laughs) all of those painful things are, are begging to be acknowledged. Yes. That's what it is. Yes. They, they want to be acknowledged. And for some bizarre reason that has a, a, a large impact on your psychological state. Uh, that's the that's kind of the what you talk about when you're processing emotions. A large part of the processing is you start with acknowledging that they're there, and I think that's why you know repressed emotion is so dangerous, especially for you know the emotions that are really making a lot of noise inside to get out and be acknowledged. When you suppress those, that energy goes somewhere it's not supposed to go. You know, I, that's right. I re- I really, yeah, I I think that there's a lot more going on with the, uh, 
the nervous system and our psychological state than we realize. And we'll probably, you know, in the next little while, I, I think because we're starting to acknowledge the fact that a lot of uh, like chronic pain issues uh, and chronic fatigue, these things can be, uh, they can actually be linked often to uh, either uh, repressed emotion or some kind of trauma or or something that was not acknowledged and was pushed down and and then kind of in some bizarre way festered into an actual physical symptom. I think that that's what's going on anyway. Yeah, I totally do too. And, uh, and it's for me, the evidence is um, the evidence is, is in how I, how these thoughts come back or how these memories come back. And uh, I've had, I've had, kind of interesting little experiments where, where situations that I was involved in at work, um, I've had opportunities to see them come back in the, in the media, for example, whereas before that would have, if I saw, saw the story that I was involved in, in the media, like it would have, it either would have like kind of made me jump or gasp or like, think like I could actually feel like a, like a response. And, um, and that happened a couple of months ago and, and where a story that, that I knew very, very well and, and had a traumatic experience with came back and was in the, in the news. And, and my friends and family said to me, Oh, like, what was that like to, to see that again, or to think about that again? And I was like, and I had, I had done a bunch of writing on it and I'd done a bunch of art on it. And I was like, Oh shit. I didn't even think about that. It didn't even, it didn't take me back to that. Mm. Um, because I think I had, I had, I had uh, nurtured it. I had owned it and, and given it value and told my brain that, Hey, this was an important thing that happened and um, created some art about it and some writing about it. And, and then when I, when it came back and I, I saw it again, I wasn't, I wasn't triggered, re-triggered in the same way. Isn't that strange, eh? Yeah. The actual, to be able to see the results of processing a set of emotions and having a completely different response to the point where the first response is a physical, like a gut punch type response. And then the second one is it doesn't even phase you. Yeah. Yeah. Until, until someone reminds you and says, yeah. like, did that bug you? Oh no, it didn't. It didn't that time. So. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, what else did I not mention in my little list here? I think we should I mean, we're talking about this time where you're, you're kind of in the, the first stage of limbo. Uh, you're waiting to talk to an addiction specialist and you're trying to restructure your life. So we've talked about uh, little things you can do to kind of uh, keep yourself on track. Um, there, are, there was something that I found really helpful the first time I, I felt like I was kind of having a, a sort of coming unglued a little bit. And uh I sat there and I thought about what was going on and I, I, I made the connection in my mind that the way that I felt and the way, whatever my life was at that time, I realized that it was temporary and that doesn't sound like a significant realization, but when you're under that level of duress and for myself, it was easy to, to start to believe that there was no way out. And once I, 
I looked at that and I realized that it, that it had to be temporary. You know, it, it can't last forever. It's impossible. I mean, it, you're, no feeling lasts forever. It, it, there is, if, it, it, in given time, the, the, the feeling will change. And uh, sure enough, it did. But I, I think that that's something that people could look at early on and just every once in a while remind yourself that you're not always going to feel the way you feel right now. Because it's, for one thing, you've, you're, your whole nervous system is out of whack. So and we're going to talk about this in a bit, but uh, with post-acute withdrawal. But you're also facing a whole bunch of different, like I said, there's stressors that you you didn't even know exist. And all of a sudden you're facing them all. So um, that's something to consider. The other thing is uh, the importance of, of really considering hiring a, uh, a personal therapist of some sort. I know, Corey, you've had uh, success with that. Uh, I, I do have a few different clients who, who went that route and, and found it tremendously helpful if they were able to find. It's not always easy to find a therapist that you click with, but in this part of the game where you're, you're early on and you're very kind of, there's a lot going on. And I think just to have somebody who's at least familiar with the mind state that you're in could be pretty beneficial. Oh yeah. Um, who doesn't, who doesn't love you, who doesn't have a, uh, you know, a personal connection to you who's just impartial and can help you help you weed through it. Yeah, yeah for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, the thing, the only thing I would add to that is, is don't be afraid to walk out. I've, I've had single appointments with counselors before where I've said, Nope, <laughs> not going back there. And I've had appointments with counselors where after a couple of sessions, I say, Ooh, going to keep looking and then find I've, I've been very, very fortunate and, and, trusted my gut with, with people and found a, a wonderful one really, really early on in my process and then found a new one um, much more recently. And, but there were ones in between where I just, no, no way. Yeah. <laughs> so don't be afraid to, to you're, you're the boss kind of, right? Yeah. That's a, a, a really important point. And what you said about trusting your gut there, I think is, is really important. You're going to, you will know when you find somebody that you're connecting with. Yeah. And if you're, if it doesn't feel like that's happening, then by all means, keep searching. And the therapists are aware of that too. It's not like they're going to be insulted. They know that, you know, not every person who walks in is going to, is going to be a client that they can help. So, yeah. Uh, so that's, and then uh, the only other thing that is probably worth investigating if you have the time, the motivation and the, <laughs> the energy is uh, looking into uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Just the basics, I think, of uh, CBT are are helpful to go over. I mean, you, most people, I think, are familiar with um, that. You know, at least some of the uh, negative thought patterns that that people are susceptible to. But I found it really helpful to to actually get get those basics on paper and then go through them and look at them and. Okay, what you know? What part of this is affecting me? And you know, it, <laughs> I, I think you're similar in this way, Corey. But I, the the amount of different techniques my mind was using to generate negative thoughts was staggering <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, they're coming at me from angles I didn't know existed, and being able to look at them, say, oh, "Okay," and then challenging those thoughts based on those um, patterns. You, once you recognize the patterns. And it, it makes it easier to, to, to question the validity of the thought pattern that you're having. 
And that's yeah. kind of the basis of it. So it's, uh, it helped me. Me too. And, and the, you know, we both have experience with the smart recovery model, which is a great alternative to, to AA if, if AA isn't up your alley. Um, and that's heavily cognitive behavioral therapy based. Uh, and there's lots and lots of tools that you learn on a weekly basis uh, by attending smart recovery meetings. So just a little, little shout out there. Absolutely. Um, so with that, we come to our last point here, which we want to talk about, which was, uh, first of all, we want to, to give a clear definition of post-acute withdrawal because for some reason it doesn't get the attention it, it, it should. No. And I, I, I suspect maybe it's because it's not as um, like everybody knows what acute withdrawal from opiates looks like just from movies and stuff. Right. So you, you kind of have a, at least a somewhat of an understanding as, as to what they look like and what the process is going to include. Uh, but, but post acute, I hadn't even heard that term before um, I encountered it. Had you, were you aware of it at all going in Corey? You were the first person who uh, told me the term, and that was that was uh, three or four months into recovery. So I had not oh. heard it. No. Okay. Nope. Yeah, and it's it's funny because it's a, I mean, it's a well known, well documented. Maybe the problem with it is because it's so hard to treat, and it's structurally elusive, and that it can have um, a presentation pattern that's very different depending on the individual and other factors, but. Generally, the way it works, and, and keep in mind that this is for any kind of substance, uh, alcohol has post-acute withdrawal stages as well, uh, cocaine, stimulants, benzos, all of it. So what happens is you go through the acute withdrawal phase where your body is basically having a freak out, trying to uh, maintain or, or re-achieve uh, homeostasis. And once you get to a point where that no longer becomes uh, a real symptomatic thing as far as you're, you know, you're not actively throwing up or, and all of a sudden you're maybe able to sleep a little bit and you start to feel a little bit more normal. Um, there's a stage that begins. So after say, say you quit and you, you're abstinent for two weeks, you go through all the, those acute withdrawal symptoms. And then you get to this point where those kind of subside and you're left with a, a feeling of, uh, what you, you think that you should start to feel normal again. That's what most people think. Um, and what happens is you, you feel uh, there's a, a few common symptoms that, that most people feel for, it can be an extended period of time, depending on your use. It could be, uh, you know, it could be a month. It could be two years. It depends on how heavily uh, your drug of choice was abused. Maybe it was a polysubstance situation where you got a few different drugs being used. Um, the strength of the drug. I mean, if you're, you know, if it's methamphetamines or something like that, and you've been using them for a long, long time, you're probably looking at a significant period of, of recovery where you're going to be facing post-acute withdrawal symptoms. Um, and also it's individual based. So <clears throat> you could have two people, same size, same shape, um, different genetics. And for some reason they, they do everything the same, but the one has uh, post-acute withdrawal symptoms or pause for two months. And the other one has symptoms for a year. 
We don't know why that is. Science has not been able to elucidate what's going on there, but there's, there's a genetic variation in the elasticity of your nervous system, I guess you could say. So uh, common symptoms are just a general depression, irritability, uh, anhedonia, which is uh, basically you're, you feel like nothing brings you pleasure. Uh, so whatever, you know, you might've enjoyed some type of food. Now it tastes bland sex. It doesn't do anything for you. Um, <clears throat> that can be another factor. Actually, your libido tends to drop off at least for a little bit. Um, insomnia is common. So you'll start to sleep again, but your sleep will be generally poor quality. You won't sleep as deeply or as soundly and you wake up feeling not as refreshed. And uh, brain fog is common. That's, that's something for some people that can last a long time. And the, the really weird thing about pause is that it can come and go in waves. So like, for instance, I had a, an experience where I was probably two months out and I was actually, I had a day where I was feeling good and I couldn't believe it. I was driving along, it was sunny out. And so I was, there was a song that came on and I was like, huh. And I had been so long that I enjoyed music and I, I actually heard the music and I enjoyed it. And I put a smile on my face and I, I thought, oh man, I'm getting better, you know? And I, I had kind of a good day there and I started to think maybe there was some hope. <laughs> and then the next day I just got hammered with like the, the worst pause symptoms I'd encountered yet. So there's some kind of a, a process that has to to go on there where you're, this is fairly common where people have, they'll have a good stretch and then they'll have a little bit of a rough patch and back and forth. And then eventually that kind of roller coaster evens out. And at some point you are back to basically your, your normal baseline, um, which most people will get to unless you've, unless you've really had a lot of indirect um, health, con like if you've, you know, if your nutrition's been poor, maybe you've been living on the street doing heavy, heavy drugs for a long time, uh, really beat yourself up, then then you're probably going to have uh, symptoms that might not go away. But uh, for most people, if you're if you're taking care of yourself and at least reasonable uh, throughout your your addiction, as far as taking care of you know eating and sleeping and stuff, you're probably going to come out and, and eventually feel somewhat uh, <laughs> somewhat recovered, and then fully recovered. Um, so I think, I think it's important for people to understand that that's a real thing and that uh, it's, if it happens, it happens and it's, you shouldn't be surprised by it, but it doesn't have to happen. Some people, they get through acute and they have very few, uh, I call these types of people's uh, people's, I call these people tanks for whatever reason, they just, it, doesn't matter what they do. They, they get through acute and they're just back to normal. And yeah. it, it really bothers me because <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I get super jealous, but uh, uh, it's, it's just, again, it's a, a human variation thing. So um, did it coincide with urges and cravings for you? Uh, yeah, of course. I think um, one of the, uh, one of the, the most dangerous things about pause when it's not, when it's not brought to somebody's attention is you can think that you're going crazy and, and you might 
get it in your head that this is never going to end, right? Because you get confused. Like, why am I, it's been six months. Why am I still depressed? Why, why do I feel like this at this point? And then you can get it in your head that you're actually a damaged person who the only way for you is, you know, that's when that little voice is going to start up, right? It's going to be telling you that you need drugs. If you don't get those drugs back in your system, you're always going to feel like this. Yeah. And that's uh, so that's a real good uh, point of entry for relapse. The thing that uh, I was going to say two things, the thing that, that I noticed for myself most, uh, most obviously has been little memory, memory things that wouldn't have been there before where, um, where I didn't have, and it doesn't, it's not always the case, but, but I would say intermittently over the last year where I will, you know, have little glitches in my memory or it takes me a little bit longer to pull a memory back or a word back or like something that, that would otherwise have been right there at the front of my front of my brain. And uh, just being patient with that, like, and knowing that that is potentially a symptom of that has allowed me to, uh, to go easier on myself, I think, than to say like, why am I not remembering this word or the name of this book or, or whatever that may be, you know? Yeah. It, it's interesting that you bring that up because, uh, I got really confused by that at first too. And I realized that there were two different processes going on. Um, when was the last time you took this kind of a break uh, from your profession? Never. Yeah. So there, it's not just that, uh, you know, your nervous system is healing. You're also not being challenged like you're being challenged and our right. brain does get rusty. And I, 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 thought that that was what was going on with me as well. And then when I went back to work, it took me about two weeks and all of a sudden I was sitting at home and I was like, Oh, my brain was just out of shape. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it, and it, and I've since that where I, because I do my, my career style and path is always, I'm doing something for a little bit and then I'm over here doing another thing. And I try to avoid that hair straight back you know, uh, kind of pace, but I do get to it, uh, sometimes. And when I'm there at first, I'm like struggling. And then all of a sudden you get your, it's kind of like your muscle memory kicks back in and, and then you notice it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not, uh, it, uh, maybe it's not so much that, and maybe it's just a little bit of uh, work rust, you know? Yeah. The, the thing that's so interesting about it to me is for myself, um, is that it, the symptoms, are so similar to some of my personality traits that existed for most of my adult life, all of my adult life. Um, you know, that leaning towards depression or leaning towards like um, a bit of anxiety, overthinking, uh, things that we've talked about, like neuroses, uh, perfectionism, all that stuff. And then, or mood, like a moodiness, you know, where, where I can have wake up and just be, just have a sort of a chip on my shoulder or an edge to me that day where the um, general public or a, a social situation kind of makes me feel on edge. And that kind of always existed in, in my, in my adult life. But um, I have more pronounced days now where I notice that it can be kind of inexplicable where I'm not necessarily can't identify a reason, but might just kind of feel, feel that given away, if that makes any sense? Oh, it, it makes complete sense. Um, I think we're both, uh, 
we're both similar that way, right? We we tend towards uh, we're probably a little higher on the neurotic scale. We're uh, you know we both have to fight the darkness more than maybe the average person. That kind of thing. Um, and like just that, what I've noticed is even just the, uh, that neurotic component, uh, plays a, a big role in it seems there seems to be a, co- a correlation between that and how long somebody stays in pause. And like what I mentioned, these the people who are, I call tanks, they are not like that. No, <laughs> no they're, they're optimists. They're they've never had an issue with their, they're not neurotic in the least. They tend to be very uh, even keel. And I'm sure that this has something to do with their ability to bounce back faster. For sure. Uh, Because what you're saying makes perfect sense. I mean, these issues um, like uh, irritability, mood swings, fatigue, insomnia, well, maybe not the insomnia for me, but definitely like anhedonia fatigue. I mean, those were things that I faced long before I faced any kind of a drug problem. Yes. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just my nature. I'm prone to that to start with. So um, of course it's going to make it worse, which is why drugs work so good in the first place. Right. Yeah. So um, that does kind of lead us into uh, what we wanted to discuss with comorbid conditions where this period of time, this uh, day zero forward to three months is a good time to start to think about, um, start a little bit of introspection towards, you know, what, what was the drug doing to help you as far as your, your mood was concerned? You know, was it strictly that your job was really stressful and, and it was giving you relief from that? Was it that, uh, you know, if you think back, maybe you've, is there a, a, a condition that you were trying to treat such as depression or something that maybe you're already on an antidepressant for, and the drugs helped with that. Um, I know for me, I, I've talked about anxiety as a, as a kind of omnipresent situation that wanes and, and um, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes I barely notice it. Sometimes it's, it's pretty obvious depression, kind of the same thing. I, you know, I've learned a lot of tools to be able to deal with those, the, the, the neg- negative thoughts and stuff like that. But um, definitely there was an issue with that going on long before I had any substance abuse issues. So I think if, if people don't at least consider that possibility that there's something else going on there, then it could be that they get out of treatment. They find that they're uh, abstinent, their, their life has become manageable again, and they still feel like shit, you know, because yeah. the drug was, the drug was a tool you were using to, to cover up a problem that still hasn't been addressed. You know, um, was that, uh, I think that was probably a little bit of the case with you as well, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely was. And, and I think the thing I've learned and, and I can tie this together, both uh, the pre-existing, you know, episodes of depression or anxiety and, and moodiness, and then feeling that, you know, the waves of, of pause that I've learned to uh, the value of, of some of the coping mechanisms, like, like what exercise has done for me this, this year that like when you're feeling that stress, there is something that you can do about it. 
and like that, that a physical release is really, really helpful. And um, I've had days where days where I felt like exercising and I've, I've had a personal trainer this year and where that's, there's no resistance there, but the really interesting days have been the days that where I've had stress or had some anxiety or didn't sleep well that night because of some, some insomnia and a racing mind and stuff. And it's like, now try that exercise and see what it does. And uh, invariably I end up sleeping better, um, feel like a physical, physical release of the tension. And, um, and then you, you get kind of like that, that dopamine kick or that endorphin rush from, from the exercise. And that's not been the only thing that's been helpful, but that's a kind of an example where like how to, for me, how to push through that state that all that already existed. And when I reflect back on, on myself and my, like earlier in my adulthood, like in my early twenties, when my mental health and physical health was at its best, I was, I was meditating. I was attending uh, meditation classes. I was exercising sometimes twice a day, always once a day. Um, and I had had like a very well-rounded, balanced life. And, um, and the depression and anxiety and all those other symptoms were probably there kind of low and rumbling, but they were, they were much more manageable. And as, as the balance tipped off for various reasons, for life circumstances, because of my job, because of scheduling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, lots of stressors. Um, the, those comorbid conditions like anxiety, like some depression, negative thinking um, crept, crept up higher and became less and less able to manage, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, well, exercise is probably the cheapest, most effective therapeutic tool that we have at our disposal. I mean, sure. it's, it asks so little <laughs> in comparison to what it gives, you know, and it's always there. If you're creative, you can exercise pretty much anywhere. Um, the impact is immediate and it's pretty reliable. So, yeah, I mean, all those types of things and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe, you know, this, this ties into more acute conditions like, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress, for example, maybe it's, maybe you're off work for post-traumatic stress, or maybe you're off work because you had a post-traumatic stress in an incident and you dealt with it by, uh, using a substance, which yeah. is pretty, pretty common. So that's a, a real clear example of where, yeah, it's gonna, you do need to get your, your drug use under control. Like that's, that's going to have to be taken care of first. Um, but that's really kind of just the beginning of what needs to be done to make the adjustments so that you can live a more balanced life again. Right. Um, so, and any kind of, um, like I've said before, I, I'm not a, I don't believe that every drug problem is a source of, of trauma. Um, but there are people who have a lot of reasons to use drugs. And if sure. you look, you look at their past, um, you know, and, and I think it's, I think everybody should have their own, should be able to make their own decisions regarding, you know, if, if you've got somebody who's got a horrible past and they're fine and that they're able to function better uh, when they've got some kind of opiate in their system, then 
I don't judge that person one iota. I think, you know, if uh, my, I don't have those kind of traumas and if that's what it takes for that person to be able to live a normal life and they're relatively happy with that, then there's no reason in my mind to force them to, to become abstinent. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a matter of autonomy and uh, personal choice at that yeah. point, I think. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I think that comes down to what we've talked about, about asking yourself, is this working for me? Right? Like, and I, I look at connecting it to the conversation we're having here about the, 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 our state of health and mental health, even before addiction and during and after, um, is this working for me? And, and in, in recovery and in sobriety, is this, you know, the state of anxiety and like negative thinking, if I wake up and, and I'm feeling anxious and, and dark, is this, is this state working for me? And I'm committed to the fact that, that I'm not going to use a, a substance to, to remedy that, but it's like, okay, it, it's not working. So what can I do about that? Yeah. And it's not, it's not always that easy and, and, and clicking, clicking out of that mindset is, is the key. Like for me, that is such a huge piece of the puzzle is clicking out of that mindset or acknowledging that mindset that I'm in. Um, because, uh, without that awareness or without that insight, um, I just sort of stay put in that and, and then other things fall by the wayside, I think. But, but if it, if it is such that, that for a given time for someone, if, if a substance or if a, any kind of a behavior is working for them, it has to be their, their choice and making that choice to start the process of recovery. Um, that's where we kind of regain, regain control of, of our lives, I think. Right. And, and yeah. Yeah. Um, more to that point, I guess, or a, an example that comes to mind is a person that, uh, I had a girl that uh, she must have been uh, maybe late twenties, something like that. She was in the on the same ward as me in the treatment center, and uh, the first time I ever heard of her or, or saw her anything, I, she was running down the hallway screaming, and uh, she ran out of the facility, and they found her. <clears throat> she had made it partway into the river and was standing there, uh, you know, in her underwear. Uh, frozen. And I was like, holy, you know, what, what is going on here? And uh, she had completely dissociated at that point. So they had to send a little team out there to kind of like pick her up and bring her back in. And, and uh, the next day I kind of, we were on a walk and I just started every day. I would start talking to her a little bit. And uh, cause I, I wanted to, to, to find out what was, you know, what was, was she, was there a, a mental illness that was caught? Like, what was she so afraid of basically? And um, in time, she told me that uh, she was, she's an immigrant from, uh, she was involved in the Serbian Bosnian war. And uh, I don't know if you know much about that one, but uh, rape was used as a, rape was weaponized heavily in that war, um, especially on the uh, Serbian side. Um and she was Bosnian and she, she was, uh, she was seven years old and they were on a bus and the war had just started. 
and the bus got stopped by a bunch of guys with machine guns and they took her and a few other younger girls off the bus. And then they told her mom and everybody to get back on the bus and they drove away. And that was the last time she saw her mom from that point until she was 13. She was uh, used as a, like a pleasure girl in war camps for the Serbian army. So she would be chained, just chained to a, a post naked uh, throughout the day. That was it. She didn't move anywhere. She went to the bathroom there. She did everything there. And guys would just come along randomly and kind of use her. And then uh, when they got tired of her, they would trade her with another girl from another camp. So she would get passed around. And for years, that's all she did was get passed around from these uh, different guys until eventually uh, the UN came in there and, and there was a bunch of uh, missions to, to save you know, civilians from both sides. But she ended up getting uh, saved by a UN convoy and uh, Canada took some of those uh, refugees in. So she ended up in Canada and that's, so that's how her life started. And what happened from then on is not really surprising, um, but she ended up heavily, heavily, she was the highest dose I'd ever seen uh, for, for oxycodone orally. She was taking 20, 80 milligram uh, Oxycontin a day which I mean, she was wow. only, she's maybe 120 pounds and, uh, <laughs> um, and five grams of cocaine per day. So that's, that was her just getting by dose. Right. And so I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm watching these guys, uh, these counselors and stuff. And they're, they're, they're trying to tell her about how she needs to, you know, eventually get off. Uh, they had her on stabilized on, you know, a whack load of methadone and other stuff, I'm sure. But when I look at somebody like that and, and I see, I don't see abstinence, <laughs> at least I, I don't see it as an immediate goal for someone like that. I, I think there's a level of trauma that, I mean, you could put that person in therapy for the rest of their life. It's not going to matter. Like, that those uh, dissociation events she was having where she would just panic and run. She's not even there. That's just her body, you know, to, to even get that under control, she would probably need some kind of pharmaceuticals. Right? right. So it's, it's, it is something to consider, you know, and it's easy for us uh, because we are blessed enough to live in a place where, you know, hopefully you're, you don't run into something like that. Um, but not always the case. And there's different levels of trauma. I mean, there's people, uh, Vancouver East side. I don't know if the right thing for them is to get them onto a, a zero dose, anything, you know, like probably they're never going to be off pharmaceutical drugs anyway. So I think the mission should be, let's get them comfortable. Let's get them stable. And that's sort of, that's sort of what you're trying to do. What we, you know, it, that's what I was trying to do with myself in the beginning. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> The mistake I made the first time was based on, I got to get this drug out of my system as soon as possible so that I can get back to work. That's nonsense, right? That's, you know, work is very low on the priority list when you're talking about that kind of an addiction. And um, yeah. I think giving ourselves the time um, is the, as professionals in the context that we're talking about here is the, is a huge foundational piece of it. And uh, it, it is contrary to what the message that we have all 
been given is right. So, um, absolutely, yeah. And it's it's a it's not accepting that it will take time and that it will be a bumpy road in in many many forms um, is to set ourselves up for disappointment, for frustration, for anxiety, for risk of relapse, um, and just a huge toll on on our mental health. So I think, you know, we're talking about that first stage of from day zero uh, and, and on in that first stage, I think to um, the message we want to hit home is to, to be patient with yourself in the journey and be patient with how long the process is going to take. And, um, and that's partly due to the bureaucracy, but, but whatever, it's going to take long and, and uh, being okay with that has, uh, will will be helpful <laughs> you know yeah and that that part about um i talk lots about being your best friend you have to be your own best friend and you you probably won't feel like being your best friend you're probably pissed off at yourself at, in that period of time you know you're lots of negative like why did i do this what's wrong with me you know how come everyone else is able to do this i can't what's you know really that yeah. kind of talk but the only way to make progress is to uh, you're going to have to learn to advocate for yourself throughout the process. That's one thing you're going to find out. So if you're not your your best friend, then you're going to have much more trouble than if you're looking out for yourself. So that's a, that's a mindset that you're going to have to cultivate, or at least try to work on cultivating early. And the quicker you can kind of be on your own team, I think the, the better chance you have of not only getting through the, the, the entire process, but of also being able to absorb information that's useful from whatever treatment plan they assign you, um, but also being able to um, let, let the stuff that doesn't pertain to you go and don't get, oh, yeah. don't get tied up in that because that's, that's another mistake people can make, especially in, in treatment, right? So, um, but yeah, we'll... We'll talk about that uh, next time. I think what we'll do is um, for the next episode, we'll probably maybe look at the independent medical evaluation and then uh, forward on to treatment. Yeah. That might work. eh? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Then uh, our goal here is to give you, uh, we want to give you a, a really nice picture of, of what is going to happen. So we're trying to lay this out for you so that you're prepared uh, and you you can think about your options a little bit beforehand um, because lots of times uh, when most people go through this, it, it's like you're really getting smacked around. It feels like you're getting blindsided on a weekly basis because nothing is ever explained to you in total. There's a, They always hold something back and then you get to the next hurdle and you think you're through and then bang, gut punch. By the way, yeah. this is happening. So. Um, we're going to try to lay it out as nicely as we can. And please, uh, if, if you do have questions, uh, this will be on YouTube, of course. So you can ask questions in the comments or, uh, email us at us at recovery And, uh, we will, uh, we're happy to answer any questions. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, hopefully we've um, said a couple of things that will be helpful and give people some ways to uh, cope and, and manage navigating, navigating the system. Right. And um, 
for listeners who haven't been through it or are just listening because because they care and are interested, I hope that it, it at least broadens everyone's uh, understanding of what really happens out there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Corey. Uh, it's good stuff. I think we'll leave it there. Call that episode six and see you next time. Yeah. See you soon, everybody. Thank you.